Welcome to Plan B Security with your host, Mike McIntosh. As everybody finds their way making it back home after a crazy hacker summer camp for 2023, take a moment and remind yourself why you are here. For those unfamiliar, it is made up of the security industry's flagship conferences known as Black Hat, DEF CON, and besides Las Vegas. For some, it's about selling a brand new product they just brought to the market. For others, it's about bragging about their skills and some cool things that they've done over the past year, rightfully so. But for most, it's about learning. I was reminded of that when I went and grabbed some dinner. I uh, went to the Cosmo and uh, went to that Holstein's uh, Shake and, and Hamburger place. Wink, wink. Uh, sponsorship opportunities are available. Um, anyway, I got into a really nice conversation with somebody sitting at the next table. No idea who they were. Still don't know their name, but we did have a like a 30-minute long, 45-minute long conversation. They were new to the field. Uh, this was their first time coming out to some of these. They went to a B-Sides in the past. I think it was Pittsburgh or uh, Harrisburg. And um, they just they, they were saying that they felt really intimidated uh, with the field still. So I took an opportunity to learn a little bit more about them. And it sounded like they had a really long uh, IT background, maybe about 10 years or so. Uh, they went to school for it. They did the IT at their uh, college. They really enjoyed it. Um, right now, they administer Microsoft Office 365 and, you know, tools like that, one login, so on and so forth. And they're like, well, what is the difference between a security person and an IT person? And the first thing that popped to my mind is a security person will do things right. Whereas an IT person traditionally will just do things to be productive. It is the goal of the IT team to enable the business to be faster, where it is the goal of the security team to reduce unnecessary risk. And when you're willing to take risk, document it very clearly. Their follow up question was just straight up. What do I do to get into that security mindset? I've been doing IT for the 10 years. I want to move into security. Where do I start? Now, whenever I get this question, I actually refer people to the FTC website. FTC is the Federal Trade Commission, and the FTC is responsible for preventing, um, what do you call it, anti-competitive, deceptive, or unfair to consumer practices. So think of it as your company, you're doing something wrong, FTC is going to come after you. In the United States, this is that governing body from the federal government that holds the companies accountable. So FTC is responsible for... Um, anything that's cybersecurity related. So if you have a large data set and it gets leaked, FTC will come after you. Now, the reason I like to refer people here is because the FTC essentially gives you a blueprint on how to build a security program, or at least what to think about as you're building a security program. So they have a thing called Start With Security, a guide for business. You can go find it on their webpage. There's a big PDF. You can actually have them ship to you a whole bunch of uh, pamphlets. I actually had them send me, I think it was like 200 copies of them because I like to hand them out at events just to get people thinking about this and why this is so important to me is the FTC will go after companies failing to protect personal information every time they do that is a public case those public cases are tried in court there are facts that are given uh, and then the outcome of that is something that will then become either case law or become a standard for setting the bar higher for how companies should handle personal information The TLDR of that is learn from other companies' mistakes. There are many, many companies that you do know uh, brand recognition is very high with a lot of these cases. And that's exactly why the FTC will go after them because, hey, a lot of people, there are a lot of consumers using their services that give them their information 
these companies are responsible for protecting it. And every time they go after them, they will say, hey, this is what the respondent failed to do. The respondent is a company that had a, suffered a data breach uh, and the FTC is making a motion against. So, for example, let's look at Twitter. In 2011, the FTC brought a case against Twitter for being breached twice within the year of 2009. In one of the incidents, a malicious actor was able to get unauthorized access and send tweets on behalf of other Twitter users with large followings. In another incident, malicious actors were able to gain access to a Twitter employee account and issue password resets on behalf of Twitter users. During the discovery process, the FTC was able to identify about seven failed controls where Twitter was not taking appropriate action to prevent unauthorized access. Now, obviously, I didn't go into this very specifics of this, but I did refer that person I was talking to to go ahead and check out this webpage. But for a little bit extra context here, I'll go ahead and I'll read those seven. The first one was, Twitter failed to prevent unauthorized administrative control of the Twitter systems by, among other things, failing to a establish or enforce policies sufficient to make administrative passwords hard to guess, including policies that one, prohibit the use of common dictionary words as administrative passwords, and two, require that such passwords be unique, i.e. different from any other password that the employee uses to access third-party programs, websites, and networks. Now let's go ahead and break this one down. This is a perfect place for somebody with an IT background to start thinking that security mind. When you go ahead and you configure a service uh, like Active Directory, Okta One Login, whichever one there is, um, you have ways of enforcing a password policy. 99% of the time, especially within Active Directory and, and Okta, um, I'm just using them as an example because I'm most familiar with them, but have features to make sure that common passwords can't be used. Within Okta specifically, there is a common password check where you can restrict the use of common passwords. Think of the RockU user list to prevent these types of passwords from being used by other accounts. Now, as a system administrator, think of the password policy, be involved, start asking for uh, to be involved in this. How do you make sure that everybody's special character that they're adding to the password is not going to be an explanation point? Because if you go into any room, there's a good chance that every single person in there is going to be using an explanation point at the end of the last password that they used. Where it starts to get tricky, though, is how do you make sure that somebody's not reusing a password or that it is uh, unique across different accounts? without having the plain text, clear text. This is where some of the guidance is not going to be exactly perfect and it's not giving you that blueprint that you can take and just start running with. you got to get a little bit either creative or understand what is it that they're actually trying to ask for in the spirit of their declaration. One way of solving this is actually using the password alert Chrome extension. This Chrome extension will listen for input types on HTML field elements. Um, think of it as like a input type password and it will hash that and then store that hash either locally or if you have a service listening and configured on the back end, it can check to make sure that it's not being reused across different URLs. For example, you do not want to reuse your super administrator login for your admin.google.com on your Napster or your Flickr account. Those passwords, if one of those accounts gets breached, the likeliness that somebody can guess either your email um, the email format, the suffix format, the prefix format, whichever one it is that your company decides to use, they'll go ahead and they'll try that. And that's how you get those account takeovers cross services when one service is breached versus the other. 
something small like this would satisfy that requirement in the guidelines. But there are other security concerns that, hey, we never want to store a password in clear text. That would be careless. So never go ahead and, and just take that clear text password and store it against and check it against somewhere else someone's entering a password. Let's be smart about that. So put on your IT hat. Go look out there and see what type of group policy you can figure in Active Directory. Uh, and if you're using one of the SaaS-based primary IDPs, um, identity providers uh, for long, if uh, you're using Okta or something like OneLogin, see if there's some type of common password check. Talk to your organization, see if maybe there's a way of turning that on. Number two was establish or enforce policies sufficient to prohibit storage of administrative passwords in plain text in personal email accounts. This is where a lot of your DLP strategies will come into play. Number one, why is anybody ever sending a clear text password to an email for an administrative account in plain text? The plain text part is just like the icing on the cake. Always make sure that you're using some sort of password manager. Um, one password, LastPass, I understand that they each have their own issues there, but at least you're, you're not sending this plain text inside your email account. If your corporate account gets compromised, somebody can access your email, or if somebody gets physical access to your phone and you don't have a password lock on it, it's game over. DLP solutions will also struggle a little bit here because there's if there's no context around what that string is inside the email, it may not be able to pick it up. But if you start doing some sort of normalized passwords or you take the password policy, turn that into a regex, maybe there is a way that you can go ahead and implement a, a successful DLP check for your email. So again, going back to that IT mindset, trying to get into security, let's go ahead and, and see if we can configure some DLP rules, put them into a um, monitoring mode or a non-blocking mode, just so you can start collecting some metrics. And then, you know, let's get that report, start looking over with your security partner or whoever your leadership team is and see if there's some value in there. This rule can also be applied to all employees of your company to make sure nobody is emailing any type of password. So turn this also into a learning opportunity for the rest of the company, put together some, hey, here's our policies around password sharing. Here's the tools that we suggest that you use. Here's the methods we, we prefer for you to use. Um, and you know whatever the repercussions would be if you failed to follow that. The third point from the FTC states that Twitter failed to suspend or disable administrative passwords after a reasonable number of unsuccessful login attempts. Now, when you have a dictionary or a brute force style attack going against the account, you'll have a huge spike of account login failures. Now, depending on the type of attack and who the attacker is and who the uh, target is, sometimes the username's not known, but a lot of times it's just gonna be the employee emails, which can be public and, and grabbed off of something like LinkedIn. So what you'll wanna do is you'll wanna configure like your Active Directory um, ADFS instances your Octas, your one logins to lock out after a certain number of failed login attempts for a certain time period. So let's say that somebody's using a list of 10,000 um, dictionary style um, passwords. They're going to get locked out after the first 10, maybe even less uh, for 15 minutes. And what you're doing is you're increasing the cost for the attacker to continue to go through this process because now they have to slow down their scripts. They have to wait for the timeout to finish. Uh, and then they can try again. During this time though, use it as an opportunity to ensure that you have MFA on the account. So if the username and password are compromised, that the account still cannot be accessed because MFA cannot be compromised. Putting your IT hat back on, 
you are the implementer in a lot of organizations for some of these policies. Make sure that they're configured, perform uh, routine audits, you know, monthly, quarterly, half of year, uh, every year, just to make sure that they are in place and test them. Tabletop exercises are really good opportunities for you to understand the boundaries of your system and if they are operating with the expectations that you have. This next one is interesting. So what it says is Twitter failed to provide an administrative login webpage that is made known only to authorized persons and is separate from the login webpage provided to other users. So think of this as having a, um, you know, your company.com domain, and that is the same portal that the system administrators as employees will log into to take administrative and support actions for certain, you know, behaviors as your users will log into the platform to actually consume it. You want to try to keep those separated as much as possible. This is more of a uh, architecture decision more than anything. And ideally, this is something that you would either put behind the VPN, a device trust proxy, or some sort of other network gating mechanism to prevent consumers from using the same thing that administrators will use for the platform. The piece here though that sticks out to me um, and has for quite some time, especially with the shift that you've seen. Now this was written in 2011 and they state explicitly provided administrative login page that is made known only to authorized persons, which to me says, hey, I can only access or I only know that this page exists because I am employed by the company. Meaning that a solution today that you would see with like a device trust proxy where you're hosting that support tool straight on the edge may not meet the spirit of this back in 2011. But today, because there's compensating security controls of that extra layer of device trust, meaning that, hey, we have EDR installed on this system, um, which is like your antivirus, your endpoint detection response. We're monitoring the endpoint. It's part of our um, asset lifecycle. Uh, we have configuration management on it. We know who it's assigned to. We know who's using it. And only those devices, in addition to having valid credentials, can access this endpoint would satisfy, in my opinion, that requirement today. Back to the IT hat. This is where it's important to make sure that you are publicizing uh, and evangelizing a lot of your uh, capabilities that you have as an IT team to the rest of your engineering team. So as they are starting to build some of these, you know, if you do have a, a controller or a capability that they can consume to make the system more secure, break out of that standard IT engineering silo, work together and make it even better. Next up on the list is the failure to enforce periodic changes of administrative passwords, such as by setting these passwords to expire every 90 days. Now, a lot of you are probably jumping out of your seat saying, oh, I know that the NIST has guidelines on this. Now, NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and they work very closely with the FTC. Um, while the FTC think of that as the enforcement arm, NIST is one of the places that does a lot of the research and they'll come out with a lot of these actual guidelines uh, for you know different companies to start consuming and put in them in place. It is not a, hey, if you follow all of the NIST guidelines, are you satisfying the requirements on the FTC? No, you're not. But does it help? Absolutely. So while the FTC explicitly stated a 90-day rotation period, one thing I do want to call out is the NIST guidelines nowadays do suggest that you change a password at least once a year. They also explicitly call out that changing your password more frequently than necessary can actually have a negative effect on security since users may have simple variations of the same password over time instead of creating stronger ones with each resetting period. 
Now, one uh, approach that I actually like to take here personally is I like to actually not store passwords at all. Um, so think of it as like a one-time uh, use password on the Windows side. You may be familiar with Laps, for example. Uh, on Okta One Login, if there's a service account I need to get access to, I actually like to just set the password, um, completely wipe it out, uh, roll it after I'm done doing whatever I need to, and then using WebAuthn as your MFA to log in for that physical proof of presence. Now, putting your IT hat on again, uh, one thing I would definitely call out here is if you have API tokens, um, you have service accounts, anything that was used by a newly terminated or recently terminated employee, do your rotations then. It is a pain in the butt. I get it. But it's better to do it now than to have a huge fine, a consent decree, and no more of a job because you didn't take an extra couple minutes to be able to rotate those passwords and those API tokens. So definitely put a lot of effort there. And let's say that you have an organization with a medium amount of turnover. If you have one person leaving a year and you're rotating the shared passwords or the credentials uh, for the accounts that everybody would be logging into once a year, you're satisfying those requirements as well. Next up was the restrict each person's access to administrative controls according to the needs of that person's job. This one screams the least privilege principle. What you'll notice in a lot of companies is people just say, I need access to everything because I do. And that's not a, a, a valid defense when you're going up against the FTC. So what you want to be doing is making sure that, hey, if, if I am a engineer and I'm working on this specific piece, you know, in the, in the case of Twitter, let's say that you are working on the timeline feed. You'll probably need either sample data um, or the ability to debug certain types of feed issues if there's a, a paging or a caching or a scrolling issue. So yes, you may need access to certain types of things. Uh, you may even need access to non-public information like private tweets. Um, just be able to make sure that you can replicate or resolve any type of bug that comes up in, in that course of due business. Does a salesperson need access to every customer and every corporation that is a, a consumer of your plat product or platform? Probably not. Do they need the ones that they're responsible for overseeing, managing, and that they're delegated to and, you know, to cover somebody else taking some PTO? Yeah, that's reasonable. So think about when you're starting to build some of these functions and features out, how do you put that control into place? Um, this goes back to that core platform permissioning piece, breaking off access. If if you're not working and you're an hourly person and you're, you know, trying to, trying to log in, that access should be cut off and you should not be able to, to get access to any of the data. Simple as that. So try to think about some of these controls that you can put in place and, and putting again your IT hat on. Okay, what's the request flow to get access to this? Not everybody should have access to every permission day zero that they start. A lot of them should have training associated with it. You should make sure that all the roles, permissions, um, all the type of data, you have it inventoried, you have it listed out as to you know what it does, uh, what this data could be needed or, or used for, um, how does somebody get access to it, what's the justifications that are valid, think of those business uh, justification requirements uh, that you have with a lot of other types of compliance, um, for example, SOX, uh, and then what is the step for making sure that you're re-reviewing this permission and, and this access. Somebody changes jobs and their new job has nothing to do with their old job, they should lose all their old permissions. They should not be retaining it. Um, think of it also as you start to grow up the, the chain. Um, your company scale starts to get bigger. 
uh, your executives are probably going to be the first people that are going to be attacked. That's who, you know, the attackers are going to be going after. They're public, they're, you know, known, they're, you know, championing the business, they're on LinkedIn, they're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, wherever it is. They're like, hey, look at my business, look at my business, look at my business. You can look at their their name, understand their name. Sometimes even publicly is going to be their email address. Now that's who they're going to be attacking. So you want to try to also weed back some of those um, permissions assigned to some of the executives when they don't have the responsibilities that they had in the business when it was much smaller. Now, the last one is impose other reasonable restrictions on administrative access, such as by restricting access to specified IP addresses. So they kind of did talk about this one a little bit before. Uh, where it's provided an administrative login webpage that is made known only to authorized persons and is separate from the login page uh, provided to other users. So for this one, think of it as um, if you're doing a BeyondCorp type network, may not be exactly the same, but uh, it's just an example using IP addresses for restricting access. It, again, if, if you're using that device trust proxy, um, you're doing some sort of check of uh, credentialed materials, whether it's mutual TLS, an attacker's machine, even if they compromise a session or they, they compromise uh, a username and password, they're not going to have that certificate locally to be able to attest um, and validate itself to the upstream system. Those would satisfy this last requirement as well. So this kind of is is a long-winded way of, of just kind of walking through sort of where to start being security minded and, and how you can start to get introdu introduced to this. Now, is this everything? Absolutely not. Is this a good place to start thinking about it? I think it is. And, and this is why I like to sort of reference this. Um, we can go ahead and we can couple this with, you know, how do your current job roles uh, work? What are you doing on your day to day? Start thinking a little bit more security minded put a different lens on it, you know, think about it from, okay, well, here's the requirements that the FTC put out there. And there's hundreds of these cases that you can go and, and read every single one of them for. How do I take this learning and what the FTC has called out and apply it to my job with what I'm doing today? Cause that is where you're starting to shift into that security mindset. Now I'm not trying to pick on Twitter. Um, I just happened to grab one that was in the FTC database as well as a uh, very common and, and very well-known service that everybody's familiar with. Um, and, you know, just let people know, Hey, you know, mistakes happen, but you know, when you can learn from these other companies and some of their, their lack of implementations of security controls and as always, you know, do the right thing. Now to, to send us off, I just want to say thank you to everybody that has supported me over the years and, you know, just, I, I can't say thank you enough. Um, you know, I've been talking about doing something like this for a long time and, you know, I, at work, I do a lot of these, uh, sort of training sessions and, you know, I mentor a lot of folks on the side and, um, you know, try to do some speaking and conferences where I can, um, you know, I just, I've always been really passionate about this, but more importantly, it's, it, it's really the people, um, that make this place amazing. Um, and place, I mean, just the InfoSec community in general, um, everybody's unique. Everybody kind of brings their own perspective. Um, and you know, I just want to remind everybody that their kindness is free. Uh, and it's the one thing that you can give to everybody and it costs you absolutely nothing. So, um, you know, I hope you tune around for the, the next episode, um, coming up, um, probably in another week or two, but other than that, uh, you know, I just want to send you with a little word from Michael Scott. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And with that, 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Plan B Security with me, Mike McIntosh.